Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out why cybersecurity experts are warning that because of global tensions with Russia and China, that we could be entering one of the most dangerous times when it comes to attacks on Canadian infrastructure. Are we prepared? We look into whether the tight labor market is forcing employers to hang on to employees that just don't make the grade. A recording of a conference call, including the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, that took place just days after the worst mass shooting in Canadian history in 2020 and sparked political interference allegations, has finally been released. Does it back up accusations that the federal government was leveraging the tragedy to forward its own gun control legislation? But first, part of that gun legislation came into effect today. A freeze on handguns is now in place. What does it impact and will it actually help reduce gun crime? We find out. Federal cabinet ministers fanned out to big cities as they want to do, big cities where they need votes, to announce that measures to freeze the number of handguns in this country are now in effect. The Prime Minister and Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino says we've seen handgun crime go up in the country, and they were in the Vancouver area in Surrey today. Here is Marco Mendicino. Going forward today, um, it will be illegal to buy, sell, transfer, uh, or bequeath handguns. This is a significant stride forward towards smart, sensible uh, gun policy to keep our communities safe. So how does it work? Well, people who still own guns can uh, or still use their existing registered handguns or sell or transfer them to, quote, exempted individuals who is exempt. Anyone who already holds an authorization to carry a handgun. Anyone else? You're out of luck. The opposition conservatives say the freeze will do nothing to prevent gun violence. Here is public safety critic Raquel Dancho. Conservatives uh, are very concerned about the rise of gun violence in Canada. We also believe in very strict gun laws in Canada. What we won't be doing is dividing Canadians and politicizing firearms. Now, of course, the freeze is part of a broader firearms control package before Parliament that calls for the automatic removal of gun licenses from people committing domestic violence or engaged in criminal harassment, such as stalking. It also increases maximum sentences for gun smuggling and trafficking to 14 years. But let's try to make sense of this freeze. How how effective will it actually be? You heard the public safety minister say it is great policy. You heard the opposition say it'll fail. So let's try to get to the truth in here. And to help us uh, do that is both an expert and a former police officer all in one. Joining me now is Scott Blanford, again, a former tactical officer with the London Police in Ontario, and now an assistant professor and program coordinator in the Policing and Master of Public Safety program at Wilfrid Laurier University. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's never uh, a coincidence that these announcements are made on a Friday. Um, The Liberals have been trying to get as much media mileage as they can out of these ones. What did you make of today's announcement? You knew it was coming. How how effective will a handgun ban be? Well, it's a very controversial topic, obviously, and, and it's one of those situations where everyone has an opinion. And my concern would be that has this decision been made based on evidence? Or is it a political decision to a take the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. That's the easy one to go after the lawful gun owners and the lawful distributors and sellers of of handguns. And is it really getting to the root problem, which, to my opinion, is the illegal flow of of firearms, be they handguns or long rifles, into Canada across the borders? Right. And, of course, where you are in London, Ontario, you know full well that's on one of the routes that, you know, right near the Windsor border. Um, Can it both be good politics and good policy at the same time if other measures are in place to try to fight what you're talking about? 
Well, it takes a concentrated effort across a number of different spectrums. It's not just legislation and it's not just a uh, an outright ban. That's not going to solve the problem. That's just a band-aid to the underlying problem, which is the proliferation of handguns and, and illegal guns coming into the country. You, you mentioned being here in London uh, back in May. Uh, there was a drone that flew across the river from Michigan to the Sarnia side of Ontario with a bag of 11 handguns. So they're, they're being smuggled across in all sorts of ingenious and creative ways. And what it's identified is that our border is far too porous. It's just, it's a huge border. And where do you start to try and enforce this? So coming out with a ban that goes specifically after a type of firearm is, is only a band-aid solution to the larger problem of firearms in general. So there needs to be a synergistic approach of how they're going to deal with these situations. And that the uh, Canadian Association Chiefs of Police put out a, uh, a statement about this very legislation. And, and they said that they believe that a handgun freeze is one method of reducing access. And it's a very well-crafted uh, response because it, it acknowledges the, the issues. But they go on to say, we continue to maintain that restricting lawful handgun ownership will not meaningfully address the real issue, which is illegal handguns obtained from the United States that have led to the disturbing current trend in gun violence, largely related to gangs, street gangs, and sophisticated organized crime units. So they acknowledge that it, it takes a, a multi-pronged approach to address this and simply coming out with a piece of legislation, although it makes great news on a Friday night, it's not really going to get to the root cause of the problem. Yeah, in your experience, I mean, just how much of an issue is the legal? I mean, we know what the we know what the uh, what the examples put out are when it comes to why this is necessary, whether it be handguns being stolen, handguns being used in the heat of the moment, and so forth. Uh, but you're right; it doesn't. I mean, that while that may be a problem, it doesn't feel like it's the big problem. No, it's it's not. I, I have some uh, statistics here that were gathered by a, a colleague, and it looked at Toronto Police. And this is one of the problems that I, I'll speak to in a moment. But these statistics came from the Toronto Police, who do keep fairly accurate records. And for this year, there were 116 firearms seized from January to August 29th of this year. 80 of them were prohibited weapons. 24 were restricted. Restricted would generally indicate a, a handgun. And then non-restricted, which would be your long rifles, your shotguns, your rifles, only 11 were seized. So out of that, the prohibited weapons, which are the, the outright illegal ones, which I would suggest probably the vast majority of them have come in from across the border or have been modified from their restricted status by the addition of a sear switch. The, one of the uh, stats shows that uh, 11 of those weapons of the 80 prohibited had a sear switch. A sear switch allows a pistol to become full automatic. When you look at those stats just on the face of them, the vast majority of firearms that are being seized in Toronto are prohibited, which means they're strictly legal. Handgun ban has no impact upon them because they were prohibited prior to the ban. The federal government has spoken as obviously, I mean, the federal and provincial governments, police forces across the country have acknowledged the fact that the border is a big problem. Are you seeing, do you think, enough action I mean, it's very tough to police that border. When you talk about people flying drones over from Sarnia, it's hard to police the, a border the size of ours with the U.S. Yeah. But is enough being done, do you think, at this point in time? Are you seeing the kinds of actions you would hope to see to try to curb, to try to address what seems to be the real root cause here? Right now, there is no requirement for police organizations to trace handguns that are used in crimes. So without a federal database to say where these guns are coming from, how do you target 
those gun smugglers, the large numbers. What you're relying upon is the uh, the border officers to, you know, pick off the one here and the two there that are being brought in illegally. But the vast majority of guns that are being brought in are coming in en masse and are coming in in those porous areas and without the intelligence to properly target the resources that we have, considering how big the border is, it's the proverbial needle in a haystack. So having a way to properly track handguns, rifles, where they're coming in, where they're being used, how they're being used, that's the first step. You need to start collecting the data so you can then begin to target your resources. You would have thought, and and this is obviously wrong, but you would have thought that before making any decision on a policy that one would go out and study it and get as much data as humanly possible to figure out whether it was going to work or not. Well, that's evidence-based decision-making, but Indeed. it's, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not about to step into that realm. So I'll, I'll leave that to someone more versed in the politics of it. But on the face of it, uh, I would suggest that there there needs to be deeper research into this to make sure that it's being targeted properly, no pun intended, that the data and the evidence is being used to target the actual problem and not the symptoms. Scott Blanford is with us. He's a former tactical officer with the London Police Service in Ontario, now an assistant professor and program coordinator uh, with the Policing and Master of Public Safety program at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're talking about the liberal gun freeze or the federal government's gun freeze, handgun freeze that came into effect today. Um, the government, of course, uh, touting the many benefits of it. The opposition saying that it'll, it will be a failure, at least according to what they're saying. Police say it's going to be a failure. Uh, we've We've determined the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as it always does. I guess, Scott, one of the things that always pops up when a government's really focused on a certain piece of legislation, passing that legislation, promoting that legislation, sometimes it's to the detriment of other things, uh, such as at the solutions you were talking about. Uh, Again, is there a downside to this legislation, do you think? Well, anyone has gone through the process to obtain their PAL possession acquisition license, which I have, uh, even being a tactical officer and, and a police officer for as long as I was, 30 years, I still had to go through the process, which I, I think is a, the way it should be. But it's a very onerous process. You have to complete a training course. You have to write an exam. You have to submit for record checks. You have to have references that are checked. And at any given time, if a lawful gun owner uh, becomes involved with police and, and it creates a flag on the system, they could have that license revoked at any time. So they're basically being record checked every time they have involvement with the police. So the vast majority of lawful gun owners are probably the most uh, law-abiding people that you have in your communities because they don't want to lose that, that privilege of being able to use those firearms for hunting and for target shooting. Now, because of this ban, it has, in, in some ways, delegitimized their, their ability to have these. And as a result, they could find themselves on the wrong side of the law. And is that really what the intent was? I would suggest the intent was to to protect the public, protect the, the, the vulnerable members of our population, and make sure that we have a system in place that will prevent firearms being used in violence. But Statistically, based on the numbers I just had mentioned earlier about Toronto, non-restricted firearms, which are the vast majority of gun owners, uh, which are long rifles and shotguns, there's only 11 that have been seized as a result of crime. The vast majority are those illegal handguns that have been modified and are coming in from offshore. So 
the legislation looks good on the face of it today, but the problem is, as I said, it's a Band-Aid. It's not addressing the underlying cause of where these guns are coming from. And without having a tracking system through police organizations, through Statistics Canada, to target those resources and make those evidence-based decisions, it's almost impossible to stem the tide of those uh, handguns coming into the country. You must know as well as I do as you travel through the province, though, that it is a popular uh, measure in big cities where a lot of yes. votes are. And, and, and that's part of the issue, right? I mean, I guess what we really need now, and you said it earlier, you know, we know that issues with handgun crimes are going up. We know that uh, people are concerned about it. Uh, but really what we need to do is figure out what exactly the problem is before we jump in and start legislating it because it feels like half measures just aren't going to work. We're going to see more gun crime or at least as much gun crime. Um, and not much of a solution with this legislation. Well, and that's one of the problems we have with Canada being so large and so diverse in populations with rural and urban. Uh, you know, a solution for the urban population is not necessarily a good solution for the, the rural population. Mm -hmm. And in these types of, of broad stroke pieces of legislation uh, that address one particular area can negatively impact those other areas. I mean, th th this was the cause for the Alberta government looking at their, their sovereignty uh, yeah. legislation where they were going to say, no, we're not going to be involved in the buyback on the, the assault prohibited rifles. firearms, yeah. the assault rifles, yeah. which, I mean, that's a whole other topic. What is an assault rifle? There's no definition. That's another problem with this is that they, they create this legislation and they say we're going to ban assault weapons, but there's no actual definition of what an assault weapon is. So until we have a common lexicon, a, a common understanding of definitions of what some of these items are, it makes it very difficult. That's one of the problems in reporting crime. When you look at the UCR codes, the Uniform Crime Reporting uh, codes that are used by police to code crimes, there are very, uh, a large number of them can be used to address crimes involving weapons. And depending upon how they're coded, it can skew the actual figures of how guns are being used in crime. So again, there's there's not a standardization there. So it's the old saying, bad data in, bad decisions out. And that seems to be the case here. The best place to start would be with better data. Absolutely. It sounds Absolutely. boring. I mean, it sounds boring, but that's where we need to start. I think so. And and part of that is, is creating a, a standardized process for how these crimes are coded, making sure that guns that are used in crimes are sent for tracing to find out where they came from. Right now, there's no requirement for a, a police service to submit a firearm for tracing. So we may never know the origin of some of these guns. And over a period of years, as they move through the, the, the underground, so to speak, you know, the, the, the providence of them get, just gets lost. Scott Blanford, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, as the war in Ukraine grinds on, one area that we haven't talked much about um, is cyber attacks. At the outset, we really did. We really thought that uh, cyber warfare was going to be a big part of this one. And it really hasn't been, or at least not, not publicly. Uh, Russia, of course, is well known for its capacity and its willingness to carry out attacks on infrastructure and other targets in other countries, not to mention criminal attacks with financial motives that are often state-sponsored. Well, last week, a U.S. cybersecurity expert warned that given the conflict with Russia and tensions with China, that the risks in cyberspace um, are being raised, and predicting that we're probably entering one of the most dangerous times that we've had ever when it comes to our infrastructure here in the West, including Canada. So are we prepared for what could lie ahead? And if not, 
what could the consequences be? Well, joining me now is Andrew Loshman. He's co-founder and COO, Chief Operating Officer of cybersecurity company Field Effect in Ottawa. Thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, you know, clearly the cybersecurity and the cyber aggression sides of this, if I can use that word, when the war in Ukraine first started was talked about extensively. I feel like we haven't talked about it as much of late, uh, but I gather we are seeing an uptick in Russian activity, at least. What would be what would be behind that and what would the, the reasonings be? What would the targets be? Well, uh, if, if I were to be perfectly honest, I think we've all been a little bit surprised that we haven't seen more uh, Russian cyber activity since the, the start of uh, the Ukraine war and, and more uh, after effects uh, from that. The, the one thing to understand about Russia and its cyber capabilities, that it, it's highly sophisticated and, and really it, it's always been here. Uh, and uh, whether we're seeing an uptick now or not, uh, I, I think that we know for sure that Russia projects its power and its intent through a variety of means, including uh, through cyber warfare and cyber capabilities. And one of those things is that um, it, it's capable of pre-positioning cyber threats. Uh, and, and we've seen through some Russian cyber attacks that really they can set up and, and execute these attacks over a period of years. So whether they've begun more recently with, with direct cyber activities or have prepositioned these years ago, uh, it's, it's certainly something to, to be aware of and, and to be thinking about. You know, I, I was uh, speaking to someone earlier this week about how Russia's view of this war has become very much a view that it is under siege. You know, what started off as a sort of short military operation in Ukraine has turned out, turned in, at least in the Russian perception, into, you know, a full-fledged war against uh, NATO, the West, and so forth. And one would expect that that makes us at least more of a target uh, in this, uh, countries like Canada. Um, are we prepared for attacks, say, on stuff like infrastructure? You, you think about what has happened to Russia over the last year or so in, in terms of sanctions and, and Western nations slowly denying Russia the ability to procure and, you know, use foreign infrastructure, technology, capabilities, financial systems, and so on. And if you think about uh, where, um, you know, and I'm certainly not a, a political expert, but where Putin has found himself in terms of needing to show success in the Ukrainian invasion, uh, you, you would start to expect to see Russia perhaps use its cyber capabilities externally to show that Russia is still an ongoing threat and, and certainly that uh, perhaps Putin is able to, to demonstrate success outside of Russia's borders. And are, you know, your question, are, are we prepared for that? I, I think we need to think about the kinds of things that happen. So certainly it is possible that Russia might engage in direct uh, attacks against critical infrastructure. And we know this is possible. We, we've seen them do it. The, the nightmare scenario are attacks on things like energy grids, uh, you know, power plants and, and so on. And, and certainly that is a, a threat uh, that I know our critical in infrastructure sector takes very seriously and has been working with the government as well as private infrastructure, private uh, corporations like Field Effect to ensure uh, the security of those networks. Uh, when you're dealing with an adversary like Russia, however, you need to be extremely methodical and, and extremely vigilant uh, about uh, how you implement those, those measures. The, the other thing that I think Canadians and Canadian businesses need to be aware of is that attacks simply against critical infrastructure are not likely to be the only target. We know Russia to harbor or provide safe harbor to cyber criminals, which are, in fact, the greatest threat 
to Canadian businesses. And we see this through business email compromises, financial redirection attacks, and of course, ransomware. And, and we're starting to see, you know, what we believe to be the Russian government supporting and enabling cybercrime and cyber criminal groups against uh, Western businesses, including uh, Canadian how does that manifest itself? I mean, it, it's not surprising given the, the bite of the sanctions. Um, I, I guess what it feels like is that when backed into a corner, and we've often talked about, and this is more of a political and military side of things, but we've often talked about uh, you know the use of tactical, ta- tactical nuclear weapons and so forth from Russia. But when you think about it, one thing they have in their arsenal that they have used before quite effectively is cyber. And because we haven't seen a lot of it, one, I think the assumption is that we're heading in to a more dangerous time when Russia may be feeling uh, more inclined to try to use some of these uh, more dangerous tactics uh, in terms of cyber warfare. Again, I mean, you said we're, we're quite well prepared, but are we ready for that kind of that kind of aggression, for instance, or, or, or am I overstating it? I, I, I don't think it would be possible to to overstate the extent of what Russian and other sophisticated state-sponsored organizations might do or could do on a, on a digital front or a cyber front against uh, you know Western businesses. You said Russia backed into a corner, and, and you have to imagine if uh, Russia is feeling that sanctions are affecting its economy from a national perspective, they would say, well, if, if our economy is going to be affected, well, we'll affect the economies of other countries in retaliation. And so how would you do that? Well, you would deny those other economies the ability to operate efficiently. You might steal their intellectual property. You might interfere uh, with businesses' ability to operate either on a day-to-day basis or by removing their their financial means and and capabilities. We know, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, Russia, like if you you look at the SolarWinds attack, which uh, took place a couple of years ago, SolarWinds was an attack against uh, managed service providers or MSP software that they executed over the period of years. And this was uh, arguably a supply chain attack, meaning Russia pre-positioned malware and attack technology into software years ahead of when it actually wanted to take make use of it. And so what happened was Russia inserted malware into legitimate software, which was then procured and deployed by many Western businesses. And when the timing was right and Russia decided that it wanted to attack uh, specific entities, it executed on the capability it laid out um, methodically over the course of several years. And if you think about where we are today, you wonder if Putin or Russia might be in a position where they have other prepositioned or supply chain type uh, attacks ready that they might enable. Andrew Loshman is with us this half hour. He's co-founder and COO of cybersecurity company Field Effect. Uh, We're talking about cyber attacks. Uh, We've uh, often in the past talked about Russia's capacity uh, in the cyber world. We haven't talked about it as much as perhaps expected uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine back in February. Um, But there are expectations that as we head into winter, as this war drags on, uh, as Russia continues to lose ground on the battlefield, um, that it will look for new and different ways to try to punish those it sees as um, its rival here, its enemy here, including the West. Uh, Andrew, it was interesting to see, of course, that, um, you know, the big concern, I guess, long term is still China more than Russia, I would imagine. 
I think that would be a, a difficult prioritization to make. Uh, certainly, China is notable in, in both its sophistication, technical capabilities, as well as its sheer scale in terms of its cyber operations. However, Russia is well known and understood to also be exceptionally sophisticated, uh, certainly surgical in its uh, technical capabilities with cyber warfare. So what should we be looking out for then if, we, if we're talking about a potential uptick in Russian attacks? Um, is there any way that that uh, that we should be, because I don't sense, there, I don't, maybe I'm just not seeing it, but I don't sense that there's a lot of urgency around this. Maybe that's what's been interesting since the beginning of the war is we just haven't, we haven't heard government talk about it very much. We just haven't heard much talk about it at all. So I'm wondering behind the scenes, are we getting ready for, a, for, for perhaps an uptick in, in cyber attacks? Certainly when the war in Ukraine uh, kicked off, there was a lot of discussion about the potential for cyber warfare. And, and at the time, Western governments did provide warnings that in the lead up to kinetic warfare, that Russia might actually execute cyber attacks against, well, certainly Ukraine, but other allied and, and Western nations. But you're right, we, we really haven't seen that play out in, in, in any meaningful way outside of the regional conflict, you have to wonder why that might be. And it could simply be the, the case that, that the Russian government is preoccupied with delivering it on its offensive on the ground. But there could be other reasons for it uh, that we, we really don't know. In terms of what we can do to, to get ready for it and, and what we should be doing, really awareness and acceptance that the threat exists, even if you don't see it and you don't feel it, uh, is critical. This is the the challenging part with cybersecurity is that it's not like, um, you know, a set of soldiers that will across the border or cyber criminals that might be in your business physically. All of this happens invisibly. And uh, it's a part of our lives that as the economy and digital infrastructure become more and more intertwined, it's absolutely critical that, that we are taking cybersecurity very seriously. And that means investment in, in time and money and, and also awareness. Are we making those investments? Is that is that, is that being done? I, I would argue there's a lot more we, we could do. Uh, certainly over the last 10 years, the, the government of Canada and the Cyber Centre have made great strides in investing in awareness and in supporting Canadian businesses and, and making sure that we are all aware of the threats we face and providing some basic measures so that we can reduce our cyber risk to the extent possible. I, I would say that Canadian businesses certainly are, are doing a good job of preparing for cyber threats. The, our, our preparation, our, our capabilities are certainly much better today than they were five years ago. There's still a ways that we need to go in terms of being ready, implementing what we call uh, cybersecurity, health and hygiene, making sure that our systems are monitored uh, and well prepared in the event that we do face a, a, a threat. And just thinking back to some of the more recent events, are organizations themselves, for instance, private organized private companies, um, are they prepared to be able to tell the public when something's been attacked? I mean, if, if something happens, I'm thinking back to the Rogers outage, um, if something happens, are we in a position where we can communicate it effectively as well? Because that feels like it might be lacking. The government passed some legislation recently that is starting the, the progress towards what we call mandatory breach reporting. As it is today, uh, those requirements are, are really limited to organizations that are regulated federally. Uh, and so they don't apply to the vast majority of Canadian businesses. 
I, I think that disclosure of cyber attacks and cyber threats is, is absolutely critical for us to help understand where they are occurring, what the technical measures being employed to implement the attacks are, and therefore what we can all do collectively to defend against them. Andrew Loshman, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. As I mentioned in the last half hour, we talked about the rising threat of cyber attacks on countries such as Canada. Well, it's not as if the federal government hasn't been working on legislation surrounding that threat. It is establishing a framework called Bill C-26 that aims to better shield systems vital to national security and give authorities new tools to respond to those emerging dangers in cyberspace. C-26, it's called, as I mentioned, um, under it, key enterprises in the banking and telecom industries would be required to improve cybersecurity and report digital attacks. We talked about that in the last half hour, uh, or possibly face penalties if they don't. Now, the bill proposes giving authorities the ability to enforce measures through audit powers and fines. It would allow for criminal penalties in cases of non-compliance, so it's pretty serious or strict. It all sounds promising, right? Well, a new report from the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab claims that parts of it aren't actually uh, promising, but downright alarming. It makes 29 recommendations aimed at making the rules more transparent and creating more accountability. So what exactly is the problem? Joining me now with more on that is the report's author, Christopher Parsons, who is a senior research associate at the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So just to uh, to walk back a bit, Bill C-26, just so people understand what it's all about, in a nutshell, what is it attempting to do? Yeah, so I think everyone understands that cybersecurity is a pressing issue, and especially it's important that our critical infrastructure is secured, such as our telecommunications providers, um, our health networks, uh, education systems, banking, and so forth. So what this legislation would do is, one, it would require telecommunications companies, as well as other critical infrastructure providers, to build security plans and mitigation response plans, which I think we can all agree, probably a good thing if yeah. they don't have it already, they really should. Yes. And the other thing that would do is it would give the government the ability, when it comes to telecommunications providers in particular, to impose a number of actions on them, such as to do anything, and that's actually in the legislation, that is necessary in the Minister of Industry's uh, view, to secure telecommunications networks from cybersecurity threats. So that's the goal. And it actually aligns with what we see in other jurisdictions, such as in Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States. So it's legislation that is of a kind of our allies. The challenge or deficiency that we identify in this report is that many of the powers are arguably overbroad or not well enough defined. And the legislation also lacks what we consider to be necessary accountability and transparency features. And absent those features, we worry that in addition to this being problematic legislation in Canada, authoritarian governments or, or governments in repressive states could point to the legislation and say, aha, we'll just do sort of what, what Canada has and we'll use it for nefarious purposes, but nonetheless, we can have like the fig leaf of we're doing what democratic co countries do. And so those are like the high, high level uh, reasons for the, behind the bill and some of the challenges in the way it's currently drafted. Yeah, if we if we take it down a step, I mean, if we go back to the idea of of, of forcing companies to have to have plans in effect to to protect from uh, protect infra uh, critical infrastructure, you would assume they're already in place. But I guess in this case, this is just making sure that it's consistent. Is that right? 
Well, that's actually one of the really good questions about this piece of legislation. So I spoke with people in government for the past while. Um, and my question has always been, is this legislation being drafted because we have a problem? Is it the critical infrastructure providers and telecom providers in particular are not taking cybersecurity seriously? Like, do we need this today to fix the problems of yesterday? Or is this instead legislation that's looking forward and saying, okay, in the future, we could have problems. The government needs tools in their toolkit in order to improve best behavior. And I still don't know which of those uh, cases is driving the legislation, despite months of trying to get that answer out. So why well, does legislation that's a, exist? That's, alarming. that's a bit alarming, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's a little confusing, right? Because if it's to fix historical problems, a lot of these powers might make more sense. But if it's to fix the future, they're weirdly undefined how these powers could apply. And that's really problematic. If you look at the problems of the past that these might be addressing, I mean, sometimes you get the sense, and, and you, you're you're the expert here, but sometimes you get the sense that in government, someone says, we need a cybersecurity policy, let's make one. And then and then they send off people to go about doing it without ever thinking about why exactly they're doing it. Um, and that's not just about cybersecurity. That can be an issue right across the board when it comes to certain legislation. Entirely. And I mean, to give you an example of one thing this legislation would let government do, which it arguably can't do right now, is a couple of months ago, um, the federal government of Canada announced that they were going to have their long-awaited Huawei and ZTE ban. Um, and then they released a policy statement to say, here's specifically what has to come out. But they still didn't have the powers to do that. And so Bill C-26 is actually the legislation that would put in, that would empower the government to ban Huawei and ZTE formally. So that's one example of the government not having those powers, and now they want them. And in part, this legislation will do that, but it will do a lot more in addition to that, up to and including, you know, cutting off uh, service. So, you know, a service provider could be compelled to say, you know, you're no longer allowed to offer this service. You can't uh, take these software patches. Um, really, uh, anything that the government imagines is necessary could be ordered. Um, and then the judicial process where a telecommunications provider says, hold on, that's way too much. It's a it's a problem. Because normally when you go before a judge, you get to see the evidence and you get to contest the evidence, right? Under Bill C-26, however, should a telecommunications provider seek judicial review, they're not necessarily entitled to see the evidence. So one of the recommendations we say is that might make some sense for national security purposes. You know, maybe telecom executives shouldn't know what the NSA has told uh, the Canadian government. But there should be a friend of the court that's appointed that can create that adversarial situation before the federal court just uh, judge when that judge thinks it's necessary. So that's just a way of adding accountability, ensuring these orders and regulations are appropriate, and ensuring that the legislation comports with democratic norms and values. Yeah, I mean, just try to strike a balance here, right, between need to know and 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 need to know in, in many ways, uh, because, you know, as a population and as a people and as, as companies, uh, they do have a right to have a certain amount of information, at least a certain amount of transparency and a certain amount of recourse if they happen to disagree. And what you're saying is in C-26, the government's taking on powers without really defining why they need them or how they'll account for them. Yeah, we think that, you know, national security is, is almost inherently a space that thrives in darkness. Um, and I understand that. Right. So, you know, we don't want the government of Canada to put out a press release saying that, like, there's a major vulnerability in our banking sector. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. know, not what we yeah. want. So having gags, having some secrecy, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm not delusional, but that secrecy needs to be bounded. So as an example, should a telecommunications provider receive an order, there can be a gag attached to it. I understand the purpose of that gag. But the legislation, as it's written now, doesn't have a time limit or a condition whereupon that gag is lifted. So, you know, it could be that 
90 days after the order is issued. It could be after the telecommunications company does whatever they're told to do, or some combination thereof, that eventually there's some accountability for what the government is doing. And that's important so that citizens understand how the law is being used. And also, frankly, how often um, companies are fully or not fully complying with these orders. If it turns out the government's issuing all these orders, they're necessary, and companies aren't doing them, we have a serious problem with our companies, and that will necessitate uh, further political activity and possibly legal activity as well. Yeah, if you if you boil it down to why it matters to the individual Canadian, for instance, what would you what would you say? Yeah, so if we're talking individual Canadians, a lot of this sounds sort of like, okay, well, I don't run critical infrastructure, so how does this affect me? One of the ways is this: if you are, say, a rural uh, internet user, then your provider could get an order. And that order could say, you know, you need to, that provider has to stop using certain equipment that's used to service you. Um, and when that, when and if that equipment isn't available or there isn't like an alternate vendor, then you may have a degradation of service. Moreover, you could get into a situation where the government starts issuing orders and companies can actually implement them, which would be good, but it's not going to be free. And so those extra costs, I mean, maybe some companies will just bear the cost and sort of grit their teeth and take a lower profit margin, but others won't be able to do that or won't do that. And so that could lead to higher costs for individuals. And so, you know, it's on the one hand, a pocketbook issue potentially. And on the other hand, it could frankly just be that if you're in a, a rural community or an Aboriginal community, you could have real challenges in maintaining your current quality of service, depending on the nature of the orders and regulations that are issued. Christopher Parsons is with us this half hour. He's a senior research associate at the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. We're talking about uh, the Bill, Bill C-26, a cybersecurity uh, legislation the government is looking at, and a new report written by uh, the Citizen Lab that has some suggestions on how to improve it, uh, concerns around transparency, about remedies, about uh, exactly whether or not some of these powers are too vague and may lead other countries to look at them and use them differently. Uh, Chris, one of the things I found really interesting was in your, in your solutions where they all seem quite, quite straightforward, but you had a lot of recommendations on how to improve this, uh, th this legislation. What are some of them? Yeah. So I guess I should start by saying like the, the problem of being someone who spends a lot of time with lawyers is you start trying to figure out language to fix everything. So yeah. it started with a lot fewer recommendations and then gradually uh, built up. Uh, broadly, the recommendations are, are meant to improve the accountability of this legislation. So we're not saying the legislation should be scrapped. We're not saying it should be thrown out. We're not saying it should be rewritten. We think it should be mended. So that's the first thing I think is really important to note. So we've talked about a couple of things that could be done. Um, one of the important ones is just constraining how the legislation could be used. And so if you go through the legislation or if you read the report on the Citizen Labs website, you'll see the things that we've suggested is remove words like may and replace it with will. Or when the government's identifying the range of threats they're talking about, delimit it to three kinds of threats they're talking about as opposed to having including in front of it. Now, these are all grammatical fixes, but they're important because what they're intended to do is limit how the government might use this legislation in the future, such that if a new threat emerges, which, you know, let's be honest, there's a ch good chance in the next five or 10 years, things will change a little bit. The government will have to come back and make a minor amendment to the legislation. That will mean that Canadians understand that things are different. And there'll be a debate as to the new powers the government is seeking. We just think that's an appropriate way to go through national security legislation as opposed to passing legislation that is broad and sort of vague and could be used for anything. And while that has utility for organizations in government, it's problematic and it makes legislation illegible to both legislators and the public alike.
Well, usually, yeah, usually the problems lie, and the, the devil's always in the details. The problems lie with terms like may or or sha or may or could, as opposed to will or would. Right? It's uh, that that's where the issues are. What are the concerns about about the lack of of um, or at least the the breadth of interpretation here? You mentioned earlier that other countries might look in, at ours and say, "Well, I can put a will a, sh- a may or will or or would in there, and then use it differently than Canada might." Yeah. So you know, again. We live in a democratic country. I'm, I'm not expecting, you know, any of our political parties, no matter the strike, the leader, anything like that, to, you know, turn out to be like an authoritarian like we see in our other uh, uh, adversary countries. I mean, we don't have the political system. We don't have the people. But you can imagine some of the concerns that we often read and hear about in China as an example, right? There's a lot of concern the Chinese government could compel uh, parties within China to make modifications to their products without disclosure. Well, it's not 101 to 1, but it's not entirely dissimilar either. The idea that governments can issue orders to private organizations and have them do things for the government at their behest with no transparency is something we already see adversary nations doing. And I just think it's bad practice to adopt those sorts of behaviors in a democratic society. Now, does that mean that it might be a little bit slower to do it in Canada if you have more checks, balances, and accountability. You know, in some cases, the answer, frankly, might be yes. I don't think very many, to be honest, but sure, we can imagine one or two. But that's one of the costs of a democracy. Sometimes we move a little bit more slowly, but it ensures that the activities undertaken by the government are understood by legislators, judges, and, of course, citizens. Now, you've gotten together with many other organizations to write to uh, to the minister, to the ministry, to, to to seek more clarity on some of these issues. Have you heard back? Are they are they receptive to 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 advice on this one? Well, the email didn't bounce. So <laughs> that's step one. Um, but we haven't yet had a, a direct response back. I do know since releasing the report that uh, most of the political parties um, in, in Ottawa are reading this report. They are carefully studying it. Um, and I look forward to having some meetings with uh, at least members of the opposition, and I hope also with uh, the liberals as well. And, and certainly I know inside industry, civil society, and academia, people are suddenly enlivened. I think that the goal of this report was to sort of explain what the legislation is, why it's important, how it adheres to what our allies are doing, but also then offer what I think are fairly good faith uh, proposed amendments. The nice thing about cybersecurity, unlike many political issues, is it really is an apolitical issue. I mean, this isn't something where any of the political parties, you know, are for or against cybersecurity. Everyone is for it. And so my hope is that through the parliamentary process, uh, the government and opposition parties can actually come together and fix this legislation such that we have legislation fit for purpose and also meets uh, our expectations as Canadians in the kind of democratic uh, accountability that should be baked into all of our legislation, and especially security legislation. Well, Christopher Parsons, thank you so much for uh, for clarifying what C26 is all about and your advice on how to improve it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. With predictions of a looming recession, the labor market may not be as employee-friendly as it has been of late, but over the past two years, you can certainly be forgiven uh, for employees or forgive employees for feeling like the long-standing power balance between worker and employer had shifted very much in their favor. It led to a whole new slew of terms that we've been talking about, including on this show, we're guilty too, uh, the great resignation, quiet quitting, quiet firing, and now something called quick quitting, which we'll talk about. 
not to mention hybrid work models, work from home, and of course, you're on mute. But first, in the still very tight labor market, the unemployment rate in July was 4.9%, the lowest on records going all the way back to 1976 when albums were still very cool. It was 5.2% in September, so still really low. And uh, you still see help wanted signs everywhere you go. Are companies hanging on to underperforming or bad employees because they have no choice? You know, have you been faced with that recently? You thought, why does this person work here? Maybe not just on the front lines of stuff, you know, like stores and restaurants and so on. But you can tell that uh, businesses are struggling to find people. And sometimes that shows. Uh, Obviously, we're all very patient. We understand the circumstances. Um, But it's been a while now, right? So if you continue to get bad service somewhere, maybe you just don't go back. Who knows? Um, To help us with all of this, quick quitting you know, bad employees being held on to because employers have no choice, is our favorite employment guru, Alexandra Samuel. She's a contributing writer to the Wall Street Journal and author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are. Alexandra, as always, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ben. Nice to be here. So you you have your, your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the work world. What are the big concerns these days out there, as far as you can tell? You know, what I hear in organization after organization, and I am speaking with quite a range of organizations now about how to manage their transition to hybrid, how to bring employees back to the office. And and what I hear are really two things. One is we really see that our employees love the flexibility that they've developed over the past couple of years. You know, it's not true for every person in every organization, but certainly, you know, 40 to 50% of Canadians are now working remotely uh, at least part of the time or have done so over the course of COVID. And we see that people value that. And on the other hand, we're really worried about what's going to happen to our organization if we leave all these people out doing their own thing and want to find a way of bringing them back. But we're scared that if we do, they're going to walk out the door. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been seeing lots of things out there these days because we may be heading into more difficult economic times. Companies may be uh, tightening their belts a bit that, uh, you know, if you work remote, you'll be the first one out the door. I mean, that's been sort of the, I've seen that a lot on social media and I was trying to make sense of it because I wouldn't imagine that's necessarily the case. If you're, if you're an efficient, good worker and you're well-respected, does it really matter where you're working? It, it does to some extent, but it really depends on the manager, the person and their skills. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're an engineer Um, or if you have some other form of expertise that is scarce, or you're the salesperson in your organization who brings in the biggest numbers each month, you get to call the shots. That's been the case for a long time. um, And that's not going to change no matter how tight the labor market gets. Uh, If you are a lagging performer, um, and you have a manager who, for whatever reason, puts a lot of value on people actually showing up office, then maybe spending time at the office is some way of insulating yourself. Maybe you have a little more intel, maybe you pick up on some things the folks who are remote don't pick up on. Um, But the truth is, it's it's been, you know, a generation or two since we had an economy where where people could count on a lifetime of employment. And um, all that's really happened in this moment is that we've we've had a couple years where people have felt a bit comfy because the labor market has been so tight. And sadly, I think we're kind of reverting to what has been more typical for the past few decades, which is, you know, employment being somewhat tenuous. Yeah, I I think people certainly when we 
hear about what Canadians are feeling about the future. We get a sense that uh, not as all as rosy, not as, as nothing is as rosy as it was even just a few months ago, as far as uh, people's view of the way the economy is going and so forth. One of the things that's come up a lot of late, though, is because there is still a labor shortage and there is a lot of uh, positions to be filled in a lot of places that um, people, I mean, do you see uh, any notion that people who aren't quite qualified for their jobs are getting away with hanging on to them uh, because there's such a tight labor market right now? What I have seen is evidence that employers are um, to shed labor in general, even if their own um, market is is drying up. So, you know, situations where restaurants, for example, might, you know, the business, you've got a situation where inflation is slowing business down for people. They're not making quite as much money in the business as they used to. That's the kind of thing where employers might have, have shed some employees because they recognize that it's going to be a little hard to make payroll. But now the fear is, well, how am I going to get those employees back if I let them go? And so I, I think what we see is employers hanging on to employees generally you know, do you hang on to your poor performers? Well, I mean, there's a point at which your employees are are um, undermining the faith of the team if you don't trust them. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's ever a good idea to hold on to an employee you don't feel good about, but whether you um, shed labor like it was, you know, a, a raincoat just because the sun has come out, um, that doesn't seem like a great plan in this market either. Yeah. Is there more emphasis, do you think, because of the tight labor market, and this may not continue, but uh, what we've seen over recent times, is there more emphasis then on training to try to make sure that the people you do bring in, as long as they're, you know, relatively, their attitudes are good and you feel like the potential's there, um, is it imperative then on the companies to try to form these employees, to try to make them who they want them to be, as opposed to trying to just go out and hire the perfect fit? Well, I mean, this is the other place that a lot of organizations are really experiencing a lot of challenge, which is that um, particularly in organizations that did not have a strong formal program of training, a lot of organizations have relied on kind of informal shadowing and mentoring as the way that people learn how to do their jobs. I mean, just a few months ago, I was speaking at a law firm where, you know, they were talking about like, well, how do our junior associates learn how to be lawyers if they're not hanging out with the senior partners because the senior partners aren't in the office? But, you know, the problem in a lot of organizations is you've got the senior talent that has the market power to walk out the door if you make them come to the office five days a week. So they're only in the office two days a week. That's all they're prepared to do. You've got to accommodate them because they are going to walk out the door otherwise. And if they're only in the office two days a week, they're not spending eight hours letting the junior folks, you know, pick their brains. Maybe they invite some of the junior people to sit in on their meetings. But what you learn as a junior is just what you kind of pick up in the hallway. And there just isn't as much going on in the hallway anymore. So I think the challenge we have is that when there's less contact time, you really need to have a much more deliberate strategy for onboarding and training your people and it can't rely just on having contact time with senior people in the organization. And this would go right across the spectrum. I, I imagine for junior lawyers, it's 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 particularly important for anyone who needs that sort of that incidental knowledge where it's not something you would think of asking, but it's something Absolutely. that you pick up just by watching and learning. Uh, but it must spread right across all industries. I mean, Absolutely. almost all industries would, would have the same challenges. 
to, to different degrees, right? And, um, you know, it's, it, it is a case, right, of you don't know what you don't know. And it's one thing to have a task handed to you where you have specific questions, but, you know, you might not know to um, ask about how to handle a particular customer if you've never had to deal with a touchy customer before. And so, um, you know, I think, I think we are uh, going to have a challenge around transfer of knowledge, which, which is not an insurmountable challenge, but it requires us to change our model for how we do that. Um, it's not enough to rely on in-person contact. You need to start building, you know, knowledge repositories and onboarding experiences and, and having ways for people to get information in digital form that doesn't require them to sit through like an hour a day of video training um, in order to learn how the organization works. And I guess those one-on-one Zoom calls with senior members of, of staff and so on just aren't quite the same, right? You don't, uh, the dynamic is so different than just being able to be a fly on the wall. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I just had this experience myself uh, with, a, with a services firm the other day where it was a small misfire in how we were working together. And I raised the question, like, is this a, something that came up because of the hybrid work environment? And, you know, it turned out that the person, the mistake had been made by somebody who was in the office a lot, but because the other members of the team weren't in the office very much, the mistake had not been caught, the kind of ambient knowledge had not been acquired. And so, you know, I think what we need to um, really look at as organizations is each of those mistakes, and there are going to be a ton of them in the next few years as we figure this out. Each of those mistakes is a moment not just to say, oh, you got this wrong, you should know such and such, but to actually step back and say, well, what is this an example of? What type of knowledge failure was this? What is it we could put in place that would prevent not just this piece of information from getting lost, but all of those kinds of pieces of information from getting lost? And you need to look at how to build those systems into the way you bring employees in. You need to bring it to, to make sure that there are continual processes for employees and in particular, you need to build on ramps between your on site workforce and your off site workforce, because this is one of the places where we're seeing a lot of disjunctures now, right? We've got 60% of Canadians in jobs that just can't be done remotely. You can't cut down a tree over Zoom. So, you know, we're an extractive economy. People are going to have to do their jobs in person. And the question is if you're that person working, you know, retail, if you're that person working restaurant service, how do you build the relationships and knowledge that let you move up within the organization? Alexandra Samuel is with us this half hour. She's a contributing writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of Remote Inc., a specialist in remote work, amongst many other things. Um, I, I always love the, the, how the media always picks up on these cliches, right? I guess that they're not really media driven, but they get out there somehow. So we had, you know, quiet quitting, quiet firing. We've had all of these, but now the new one is fast quitting. And this was a LinkedIn, some LinkedIn data that showed that more people now than in the past are sort of picking up and leaving their jobs far faster than they used to. Not a huge percentage, but significant. What do you make of uh, of fast quitting? Well, I mean, part of this is just that um, we're moving away from a world where people did their jobs for 20, 30 years and then retired. It's not unusual now to see resumes where people are changing jobs every two or three years, every five years. And, um, and so, you know, to see some people moving on after six months or a year, it's not a, a massive distinction there. I think the real question, you know, you need to ask yourself as an employee and as an employer, as an employee, the question is, you know, have I given this job a fair shake or have I checked out 
before I've developed enough of a sense of the organization and the role to actually get comfortable. Because, you know, the first six months of any job are super tough. There's so much to learn. It's so disorienting. And when you're working remotely or working in a hybrid organization where there's less face-to-face contact, it may take even longer to find your footing. And especially at this time, right? It's, it's just challenging. And then the other piece of it, of course, is, um, you know, if I'm thinking about moving on, um, have I have I learned something? Have I got something under my belt? Have I accomplished something that I can point to and say, yeah, I was only there for seven months. But during those that seven months, I delivered this project and I felt like I really executed it well. And I'm proud of the work I did. And once you've got that, you know, if it doesn't feel like the right fit, then then by all means, what this economy does allow you to do is move on because you're not necessarily limited to your local job market. You can work online all across the country. Um, and at least for the moment, there is still more hunger for talent than people to fill those roles. And if you're good and you're going to still have good references, you can keep moving. But as we well know, the grass is is not always greener on the other side of uh, the Zoom call, so to speak. I mean, you know, there jobs you should. I always felt like you should give a job a while just to figure out if you liked it. I mean, the the basics being you didn't hate it from day one. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you sort of felt you know this was a good fit, you think back to why you took it in the first place. Um, the sort of the idea of quick quitting, unless you're going on to something much better, which often happens, of course, in this market. I imagine people are applying for multiple positions. They get one, another better one comes along, and off they go. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a big difference between moving on to a better opportunity and quitting a job and and kind of taking your chances. And I would say, you know, for anybody who is is relatively new to the workforce and has had the experience of job hunting only in the tight labor market of the past two or three years, be aware that it's quite possible that in six months, 12 months, you're not going to have the same kind of opportunities in front of you. That said, I do think employers are kind of trying to stoke those fears. And, you know, you never really want to be coming in at the job market from a fear-based perspective. Um, You're always going to be more successful if you, if you're kind of focusing on the opportunities. But I think the, the, the point you made is really the key one, which is what is it that I, what is my reason for taking the job? And, you know, it's, it's easy to just kind of bounce from job to job when, when there's a tight labor market and there's always another opportunity. And so, you know, the crucial thing to ask yourself, particularly, I'm, I say, in the, in the world of hybrid work where you kind of have to be your own motor, what is it that you are trying to accomplish? What is it you're trying to learn? What is it you're trying to contribute to a team? And that's what's going to have to drive you. If you're only in the office one or two days a week, you haven't got a boss breathing down your neck, you're going to need to care about what you're doing. And so unless you're clear on what you want this job for, um, it is going to be hard to stick with it. Alexandra Samuel, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting. The inquiry into the Nova Scotia mass shooting released partial recordings of a tense RCMP meeting Uh, Yesterday, the meeting goes back uh, a long ways, but the recording was released at last yesterday that had been at the center of allegations of political interference into that investigation. In the call, Commissioner Brenda Lucky of the RCMP said a minister's office requested information about the type of guns used in the massacre that killed 22 people, Canada's worst mass shooting back in Nova Scotia, that that information about the kinds of guns used be released. Now, the meeting was held just 10 days after 22 people were shot and killed. Um, And it has been at the center of accusations that the Prime Minister's office and then Public Safety Minister Bill Blair interfered politically with the RCMP's operations because 
of pending Liberal government gun legislation. I'll set this up for you. What you're about to hear is Commissioner Brenda Lucky in that April 28th phone call in 2020 with members of H Division in Nova Scotia. It is after a press conference in which she makes, in which the makes and models of the guns and the shootings weren't mentioned in the prepared remarks, but did come up during the reporter's questions after. The commissioner who had asked for those uh, makes and models to be included in, in the prepared remarks was not impressed. Does anybody realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now? The fact that they're in the middle of trying to get a legislation going, the fact that that legislation is supposed to actually help police, and the fact that the very little information I asked to be put in speaking notes at around 11.30 this morning uh, is when I started this, which was three or more hours before Darren was to speak, could not be accommodated. RCMP Commissioner there, Brenda Lucky, back in April of 2020, April 28th to be exact, 10 days after the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. You be the judge. It certainly sounds like the commissioner is citing the federal government's pending legislation as the reason why the makes and models of the guns used in that mass shooting should be made public by the RCMP in that province. Now, the Prime Minister was asked about this yet again today. You should know the opposition are calling for both Brenda Lucky and uh, former Public Safety Minister Bill Blair to step down. He says his government never pressured police on the matter. But every step of the way, we recognized and supported the fact that the RCMP and police of jurisdiction are the ones who decide what is released and when. All right. So Michael Scott of Patterson Law, his firm represents more than a dozen families of the 22 victims in the mass shooting. Um, And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So it came as a bit of, I mean, I knew this recording was out there, but it did come as a surprise, I think, to any casual observer about the timing of the release, because it comes after everything is done. You can't ask anyone about it. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't answer any of the questions that, or ask any of the questions you may have want answered. Well, that's that's a huge issue, uh, Ben, because obviously um, getting critical evidence after the hearings are over uh, limits our ability to to do anything with it that's constructive. Uh, and it's left us with a number of questions about um, why this wasn't produced earlier. Um, there's some indication that the RCMP has known about it for some time, and we're expecting the MCC to at least follow up on on those issues so we can get some clarification. What did you hear in there? I mean, a lot of the focus has been on this whole notion of interference, uh, but there were other things going on in that conversation that may have been even more uh, even more relevant to to you. Well, I mean, all of it's relevant um, to the extent that what you're getting a, a picture of is what priorities both H Division and National Headquarters are focusing on in the days immediately of follow, following the. Uh, you know, the worst mass shooting in, in Canadian history. So uh, you're certainly getting a sense that there are problems with communication between Nova Scotia and national headquarters and, and different uh, management problems that would have impacted Nova Scotians and our clients, but also this prioritization on um, how they're being portrayed in the media and their, you know, their their public communications. You know, these are things that that strike us as being a bit unusual given uh, the fact that we would think that they would have higher priorities at the time, like dealing with uh, the situation itself. 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make for easy listening, I would imagine, for those who who were so, who were still in shock at the time to listen to um, members of the RCMP talk about how they're being perceived publicly. Uh, it, you know, it's not perhaps surprising at the same time to hear it like that must have been jarring. Well, I, th- I think it was surprising, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, and um, and I think we expect it to some extent, you know, in, in political spheres. I don't think anyone would be surprised to learn that the RCMP is concerned sometimes about how they're being portrayed. It's just the the, the extent to which it seems to be a focus uh, in the wake of such an important event. You would think that they would sort of deprioritize uh, the, the PR issues and focus on the policing issues, at least in the immediate aftermath. So I, I think we were all genuinely surprised. When you when you heard from uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the talk had been about whether or not there was political political interference there from the RCMP's commissioner. Uh, what did you hear from Brenda Lucky in that conversation? What was your what was your take on it? Well, to some extent, um, it, it accorded with what she told us when she testified. And as much as it wasn't just about information on the guns, it also included her concerns about not getting accurate and timely information. Uh, on other matters that she had requested a map and a chronology. I mean, those things were there. With respect to the um, to the political interference issue specifically, uh, what was notable is that she confirms that it was a request that she got from the minister uh, and that she had asked for a particular line to be included regarding information on the guns. And that is a bit tricky to reconcile with what she told us when she testified, which was that she had no interest in whether that information was reported or not. She simply wanted to know one way or the other. So that that was certainly notable. Yeah, I mean, I think the exact words were, does anybody realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now, which strikes me as being uh, a uh, quite the reprimand, because I would think H Division were fully aware of what's going on in the world of handguns and guns, maybe not the, all the political implications of it. Uh, but then she goes on to say the fact that they're in the middle of trying to get legislation going. Um, it, it does sound like there's a lot of politics going on not long after the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. Well, I think what's what's galling for the clients is that particular ban uh, on, on particular models of firearms has absolutely nothing to do with what happened here in Nova Scotia. And regardless of your position on on firearms, one of the things that that was striking to to my clients, at least, was um, if you were serious about trying to prevent crimes like this in the future, you know that legislation wasn't it. But it seems to be that there was some some desire to, uh, and it's a bit ghoulish, but to, mm-hmm. to sort of capitalize on this event as a way of tapping into sort of the, the public outrage about what happened. But it, it can be quite offensive to the families. These are real people, and this doesn't help them in any way. If you really wanted to focus on things like smuggling of, of firearms and all those sorts of things, all the information about how the perpetrator got uh, a hold of ammunition and firearms was reasonably well known by this point. So it's it's somewhat disingenuous to to then make this about you know well we've got this legislation pending and this could be good for it you know that and that's what it certainly sounds like from the recording. Yeah. Is that how I mean, and ghoulish is the right word. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time covering Ottawa. It's, you know, one is never surprised by the things that are said in the halls of power, regardless of what's going on in the world or regardless of what's happened. Um, so I guess perhaps that's why I wasn't as shocked by that conversation, because it sounds like something that would be had in the hallways in Ottawa. But I imagine if you're on the other side of it, if you're from one of the families, 
the idea that somehow this tragedy was being used or at least looked at as an opportunity or at least uh, a situation where you could not talk about it seems insensitive at the very least. And I think ghoulish is the right word. Is that how it's being seen by the families? Yes. And it, and it confirms sort of their, their worst concerns about the fact that, you know, while we may expect to hear that in, in Ottawa or for people that are running for office, we expect that in, in times like this thing, you know, when we're talking about the, the period immediately afterwards, that people involved in the RCMP would be focused on policing and the remarkable focus on PR and strategic communications and public perception. And we're, you know, we're being chewed up in the media. And how does this impact the, the legislative objectives of the Liberal government? You know, what you don't hear in that conversation is any discussion about the investigation or scene security or policing. To the extent that we expect certain things from politicians, I think in a lot of ways, most of us expect more and better from the RCMP. Michael Scott is our guest this half hour. He's a lawyer with Patterson Law. He represents uh, more than a dozen of the families of the 22 victims in the mass shootings in Nova Scotia. We're talking about the release uh, just yesterday of a recording of a conversation between RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky as well as several members of H Division in uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, following the shooting. And uh, a lot of a lot of accusations about uh, the fact that there was political interference going on here, that the RCMP commissioner had been talking about uh, specifically mentioning uh, gun legislation that the Liberal government was very keen on having put on uh, having seen be seen to be put out there, at least. And the, and the pushback when it wasn't, in fact, it only came up in the Q&A session afterwards with reporters. Uh, the commissioner was not happy with that. Uh, when you heard what you heard and given uh, that she testified, uh, the commissioner did testify at the at the inquiry, do you think she can stay on? Well, I think that's that's a decision for uh, for for others. Um, I do like to to try to keep into account that we're only getting one part of the conversation. What we were provided the other day is uh, obviously not the full uh, call. We'd like to know where the rest of that call is, uh, and if it's not available, why not? And we also don't know what the communications are uh, or were between the commissioner and the minister. I mean, those things would be, you know, useful. Um, the, the unfortunate part here is that we would be able to probably uh, determine the political interference issue pretty clearly had we received this information earlier, because then people like me would have an opportunity to question the commissioner about it. And uh, Chris Leather and Darren Campbell and Leah Scanlon. But you recall, we didn't get to address much of this with with any of them because of the way disclosure was provided. So, uh, certainly, I think people should be concerned about the level of politics that are being involved um, in a discussion between the RCMP. That that should be of concern. Whether you know Minister Blair acted improperly in that scenario or not, I don't know that we have enough information to uh, to make that call. How important of an issue is it? Uh, this idea of political interference, whether there was or not, um, it seems from the outside like it might be secondary for what the families want to hear out of this commission, what the families hope this commission would achieve. Uh, is that right? I mean, it, it certainly chewed up a lot of headlines, uh, but I always wondered whether or not it mattered that deeply to the families themselves. No, that's a good question. And there's definitely been a narrative going around that uh, that this is a distraction and that this takes away from uh the important work for the families and those sorts of things. What I can tell you on behalf of the families is we do think it's relevant. Uh, and we think it's relevant because the the key matter in this inquiry is in looking at the RCMP and the government response to the mass casualty. 
And to the extent that we have a situation that reveals a fairly significant amount of dysfunction between H Division and National Headquarters and an inability to focus on the policing tasks in favor of perhaps more uh, or less relevant issues like, you know, political agendas or internal politics or, you know, public relations, all of those things inform uh, how the RCMP investigated and dealt with the mass casualty. So to the extent that that those resources were being used and you have the most senior people in the RCMP that are focused on issues other than the mass casualty, uh, I think that speaks directly to, you know, why we asked for this inquiry was to, to find out where the systemic uh, problems are within these organizations um, and if there's any adjustment that needs to be made to the way they prioritize. What would you, I mean, we're still a ways from seeing this final report. Um, what now for you, for the families, this is a waiting period, I suppose. You're just waiting to see what comes out in the spring? Well, it's supposed to be, um, but that's not the way it, it, it's it's come out. So uh, after the commission asked for its extension to provide its report in, I suppose it be the beginning of April, we should be doing very little at this point because public proceedings ended back on September 23rd. The unusual circumstance we find ourselves in now is that after public proceedings have closed, we've received a great deal of further disclosure, particularly from the Department of Justice, including this recording. So the conversations that we're having now is, how do I deal with it? How do I interact with it? How do I uh, follow up on issues that have been raised? Um, what action is the Mass Casualty Commission going to take to address failures by the Department of Justice to comply with subpoenas. It, it is, I don't know if I can stress how unusual it is to be getting all of this information after proceedings have closed. So um, I don't entirely know what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months, but certainly over the next couple of weeks, um, there'll be continuing conversations with the MCC about what do we do with this? What are the implications? Uh, do we need further information? And why? why are we only getting these things now? You know, if I was in your shoes, if I was in the family's shoes, I would struggle to to be able to be confident that this commission has served its purpose. I think I can say, I try to be as, as fair about these things, but I think it would be fair to say that, you know, very few of my clients um, have full faith in the commission. And that's not uh, simply as a result of, of this particular issue or issues that have arisen recently. I mean, really from day one uh, on... A, a wide variety of issues. We, we've had some concerns about the way the uh, the commission was handled. It, it is abundantly clear that the Mass Casualty Commission, the Commissioners, Commissioner Can uh, Commission Council, have a very different view of how a public inquiry should be run. And we've had to deal with not being able to examine witnesses. We've had problems with disclosure. Uh, we've often debated how certain issues are prioritized over others. We certainly heard from a lot of experts on things that may not be as important as things that that my clients think are important. So it would be fair to say that for a whole host of reasons, the clients are uh, are fairly skeptical about um, what's going to come out of this. Well, Michael Scott, uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much. 